This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Since we spoke last year, it truly took a little trip down to Southern California. I need to tell you a few details about, I think, because, well, there were some interesting things down south of the Tehachapis and and in the Tehachapis, actually. But um, I think I should start out every show with some good news. I think we should make that a standard policy from this point forward because there's so much bad news going on out there that we don't want to make this a bad news show. And yet, what are we going to do? Donald Trump's president. So let us snag this particular good news item from someone we're always fond of, Marilyn Vos-Savant from the Ask Marilyn column of Parade magazine. Reportedly the world's smartest woman, or at least she scored the highest on an IQ test of anybody in history. Something like, I, I don't know. Someone wrote her to ask recently, as soon as the Super Bowl is over, members of the winning team are wearing shirts proclaiming them the champions. And you can buy similar shirts on your way out of the stadium. What happens if the shirts are printed with the names of the team that lost? And you know, I, I never gave that much thought. It's a pretty good question. Said Marilyn, they're sent to an international aid group that distributes them to impoverished countries and places that have experienced a disaster. Which means that yes, somewhere in the world, people are wearing shirts that read New England Patriots, Super Bowl, 52 champions, even though they lost last year's game. And then we decided here at Radio Parallax, we're going to root for there being a t-shirt that says <laughs> Super Bowl 53 champions that is also sent to the third world. Because... Hasn't Tom Brady had enough of winning? Frankly, I think all of us are getting tired of Tom Brady's winning. So I think despite a lifetime of being a Niners fan, I'm rooting for the Rams this time. And in some other good news, we have this. Political hitman Roger Stone got perp-walked last week. From an indictment that was unsealed last Friday, the special counsel Robert Mueller disclosed evidence that a top campaign official in 2016 dispatched Roger J. Stone, longtime advisor to President Donald Trump, to get information from WikiLeaks about the thousands of hacked Democratic emails, hacked evidently by Russian hackers. The effort began well before it was widely reported that Russian intelligence operatives were behind that theft which was part of Moscow's broad campaign to sabotage the 2016 presidential election. My understanding is that Mueller had something like 30 emails from this, uh, this person to Roger Stone, and when asked about it, Roger Stone category denied that he'd ever spoken to him. So they knew he was lying. Now we should note that this indictment against Roger Stone does not mention whether Stone or any other Trump associates knew about the Russian operative plans before they hacked the Democrats, as Mueller's investigators interviewed witnesses and revealed documents, they sought to answer that question, according to sources in the New York Times, two people briefed on the inquiry. To make a case that Trump's associates conspired with the Russians, the investigators indicated that they needed to show that the associates knew about the hacking in advance. Knowing about the fruits of what Russia stole was not enough, said these sources. Well, we'll see where this goes. I would recommend, my dear listener, that you pull up and watch if you haven't seen it the first time. In fact, We'd recommend you pull up and watch, if you have seen it the first time, the documentary, Get Me Roger Stone. I did so this past week, a couple days after Roger got popped, and was just impressed by the vast degree of criminality surrounding this guy. He describes himself as a political dirty trickster, and is widely regarded by all who have encountered him as possibly the best in the business. 
The documentary, Get Me Roger Stone, and feature, features interviews with uh, Jane Mayer, whose book, Dark Money, we're keen to talk about next month. Also, Jeffrey Tubin, whose work for The New Yorker is often excellent. Uh, also, Paul Manafort, his former business associate. It was Black, Manafort, Stone, and later Atwater that were basically the, um, the PR team that would bring people like Ferdinand Marcos, Joseph Mobutu, and... Uh, Jonas Savimbi, into the White House in the 1980s to meet, meet and greet uh, the Reagan administration. This legendary PR firm was the basis for the often lampooned public relations entity that appears in Gary Trudeau's Doonesbury, in this case, Uncle Duke, doing the PR work for various Asian despots. The president of Berserkistan, I think, was one of his clients. What struck me, too, while on this little trip down to Southern California was that uh, if you can find a Barnes & Noble, you can get some pretty good deals on lots of books. I saw a copy of The Plot to Hack America, subtitled How Putin's Cyber Spies and WikiLeaks Tried to Steal the 2016 Election by Malcolm Nance. So being it was in the special bin, I grabbed a copy, started reading it, and was amazed to realize that this book hit the shelves before the 2016 election. All these folks that seem to have a problem with the fact that, you know, this data was out there a while ago, well, they, I guess they should read a copy of this book. Mr. Nance is an intelligence operative, and of course, you're dealing with a spook, there could be some game playing. I think there generally is some game playing in how data gets reported since information is power. But he does make a very persuasive case that the Democratic National Committee in the spring of 2016 and as early as 2015 had been hacked by Russians. It seems clear to him that these Russians were acting at the behest of President Putin and that despite his denials, it appears that this is the information that was placed in the hands of Julian Assange of WikiLeaks. Roger Stone, as you may recall, from our contemporaneous reporting on it back in 2016, had bragged about certain information that was about to be made public that would do some damage to the Democrats. This presumably was the WikiLeaks dump of the John Podesta emails, which was very conveniently timed, given the fact that that was the same day that the Access Hollywood tapes surfaced with Donald Trump's statements about grabbing women, shall we say. We're not going to go into the, uh, the details of this book today, but there's some peripheral stuff that I thought was worth uh, worth remarking upon, such as the report in the New York Times of a few weeks ago, noting that President Trump's relationship with Russia had come under fresh scrutiny after a pair of media reports raised new questions about the Kremlin's influence on the White House. New York Times reported that FBI agents were so alarmed by the president's behavior after the firing of FBI Director James Comey that they opened a counterintelligence investigation into whether Trump was knowingly or unwittingly working on behalf of the Russian government. Malcolm Nance likes to talk about how the Russians, of course, have had a long history, as have most advanced nations, including the United States, of, of developing their capabilities of gathering spies up to do their bidding. Nance referred to the fact that the Russians have always um, favorably commented upon a certain type of individual they could employ, people they referred to as useful idiots. The New York Times did note that law enforcement officials were especially concerned by comments Trump made on NBC News and to Russian officials visiting the White House, in which he stated that he fired Comey over the FBI investigation into Russian election interference. 
Hello? In another blow to the White House, the Washington Post reported the president has gone to extraordinary lengths since he was elected to hide the details of his conversations with Russian President Putin from government officials. U.S. officials told the Washington Post there is no detailed record of any of any of the five face-to-face meetings Trump has had with Putin, even in classified government files. After a 2017 meeting with Putin in Hamburg, Trump even took away his interpreter's notes, telling her not to share the details of what was said with other officials. And how about this? We've reported on this show, and you read in the media just about everywhere, about how uh, we've gone pretty easy on the Saudis in the wake of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Well, in the wake of that, we might want to take a look back at the December 27th article that appeared in Bloomberg about how Russia was warning the U.S. not to interfere in the royal succession to take place in Saudi Arabia. Yes, Russia telling us not to meddle with what's going on in Saudi Arabia. There was a time not so long ago that if you had a, uh, a visa, well, this was in the days of the Soviet Union, I guess that is a while ago, But if you had a a visa stamped in your passport showing you'd been to the USSR, the Saudis wouldn't let you in. And here we have Vladimir Putin saying last month to his envoy to the Middle East that uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman has every right to inherit the throne when the ailing 82-year-old King Salman passes away. Could this be another example of Russia trying to influence American foreign policy? You tell me. And uh, we didn't say too much about the fact that Michael Cohn stating that he was fearful of threats made to his family from Trump, was going to postpone his appearance before Congress. That raised some eyebrows, but in the Trump era, I don't think raised eyebrows high enough. It was also revealed by the Wall Street Journal last week that when CNBC was compiling a list of the top 100 business leaders in 2014, Trump's attorney, Michael Cohn, paid a technology company to rig the online vote used to winnow down the field. When Trump still didn't make the final list, Cohen told CNBC that it would be sued. Meanwhile, Trump called several network executives to complain. And as I hope we'll have time to go into today, Donald Trump is is not alone in in what he's accomplishing the last couple of years. According to CNN.com, President Trump has not vetoed a single bill since he took office. If you're keeping score, the last president not to veto any legislation was James Garfield. Garfield served less than a year as being president because he was assassinated in 1881. I think he was only in office six months. But but anyway, that's the last time we had a president who didn't veto anything. Mitch McConnell is evidently not allowing a vote on any legislation which Trump doesn't support. And let's back into Russia, Russia's possible influence on, well, let's say other nations' foreign policy. As reported on Radio Parallax and elsewhere, Europe is trying to resolve this impasse over the government of Greece blocking the entry of Macedonia into the European Union because they say Macedonia is part of Greece. You can't be Macedonia. The Macedonians have tried to placate the Greeks by saying, all right, we'll call ourselves North Macedonia, okay? This idiotic brouhaha dates back decades. In fact, some might say it dates back to Alexander the Great, who was not really Greek, but in fact Macedonian. Macedonia conquered Greece before before Alexander then took Greek culture all the way to Uzbekistan. 
But last week, the Greek parliament voted, in this case, 153 to 147, to go along with this North Macedonian idea. Here's the part I didn't know about. That vote was also considered a blow to Russia, which had allegedly tried to stoke opposition to the name deal with a disinformation campaign and by offering money and bribes. Because, you know, if you can keep the European Union in turmoil, Russia feels it can profit. And while I was driving around Southern California and you were listening to your radios or television, you may have caught President Trump's address on this issue of the government shutdown. I generally don't make it through one of his addresses in full, but I was driving around and nothing better to do, so I I heard every word that he said about how we were going to restart the government. At one point when he was talking about these women, that they were getting bound and put into chairs and the tape was wrapped around their mouth and then they weren't able to breathe as part of the whole border wall thing, I, I, I just, I almost had to stop the car and just sort of say that, no, this guy's nuts. While I was in San Diego, the, the mayor came forth to say, well, we don't need Trump's wall. Thank you very much. He's a Republican. Anyway, I think I just want to quote one sentence from that book, The Plot to Hack America by Malcolm Nance. He said, writing in November of 2016, apparently, there is strong evidence that the work of the Russian hackers with WikiLeaks met clearly scripted dates and actively responded to events in order to destroy Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party and to elect Donald Trump as president. And we'll see what uh, the Mueller investigation has to say about that in 2019, I'm sure. I was also struck in driving around Southern California of how beautiful it is down there when the skies are blue and clear. But I was again reminded of the fact that there are lots and lots, lots of people down there living in the Mojave Desert and in the area around Riverside, which is also pretty deserty, that like any other development are dependent upon water. I again drove through Harupa Valley, a town I'd never heard of till a couple of years ago, and again was reminded of the fact that 101,000 people live in this little town, which ain't exactly a little town anymore. It might be worth mentioning that I was also appalled to see everywhere you went, giant strip malls with the same corporate stores that we see everywhere. Your Kohl's, your Walmarts, your Lowe's, your Papa John pizzas, your Bed Bath & Beyond. Every place looks like every place else, except the downtowns of these areas. I went to uh, Victorville at one point because uh, I was intent upon seeing the Roy Rogers Museum. Well... Not really. I'd always heard there was a Rogers Museum, complete with a stuffed trigger. But I let GPS guide me to the old part of town and discovered it was absolutely decrepit. It was just, you know, taquerias and, you know, boarded up stores and not a lot of commerce because, well, all the commerce was in the strip malls on the periphery of town like they are every place else. Speaking of GPS, it is getting better. But I can't figure out why when I was driving up one highway looking for a hotel thinking... I'll drive till I hit the next main highway. That's where I'll find the hotels, obviously. I thought, no, 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 I've got the technology at my fingertips. Let me type in a hotel. It'll direct me there. And it did. It told me to drive west, which I did. And it told me to drive north, which I did. And it told me to drive east, which I did. And it took me right back to the intersection of those two highways I thought would be a good place to find a hotel. Why it did this, I do not know. But perhaps more disturbing than universal corporate commerce was the fact that last week there were temperatures as high as 71 driving up Highway 101 in the Salinas Valley. This is the last week of January. Now, I I haven't checked the Old Farmer's Almanac, but I'd be willing to bet that January is generally the coldest month of the year. And 
71 in Central California just, just doesn't seem right to me. I think our climate is changing. I think people back east would have to agree, as the polar vortex evidently has the eastern part of the United States in its grip. And in a slight bit of comedy relief related to freezing temperatures back east, it did occur to me that at least people living in Ohio or Kentucky or wherever it is that are freezing their cojones off right now can make use of the type of thermometers they'll sell you in an Ace hardware that goes down to negative 40. Now, I like thermometers, and I like knowing what the temperature is, but I keep balking every time I see a thermometer that goes from negative 40 to plus 120. It just seemed pretty silly to me. But even if you do live in an area where it gets down to negative 30, which apparently is happening at this point in time, doesn't the thermometer break? Does anybody know anything about this? You ever have a thermometer that goes down to negative 30 and then experience negative 30? If you do, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. A couple days back, I was talking to someone that used to work in a movie theater. She described how she met some famous people. In one case, somebody bought the entire theater for a given show so that he could come in and watch the movie himself along with some bodyguards. In, the case, in this case, it was Michael Jackson. She said he, was, he seemed sweet enough and had very few things to say. Like she said, I only got three words out of him, but she was struck by the fact that he was surrounded by goons. And when you know it, in the copy of USA Today that was doing a, uh, a prelude to the movie Finding Neverland, which I guess will be out on HBO this spring, they have a picture of Michael Jackson in his pajamas on his way to a court appearance with somebody holding an umbrella over him like a parasol, so I guess he wouldn't get, you know, sunburned, his delicate complexion. And, uh, well, I got to say, Mr. Merlin, these look like goons to you? Those look like goons to me. Yeah, goons. It is our suspicion that if you've got to be surrounded by goons... There's a problem. All right, since we've descended into talking about goons, we might as well do some other miscellaneous screwball stuff. How about the fact that according to USA Today, and I was reading the USA Today because it was a freebie in the hotel, okay? According to McPaper, a wave of, quote, Bible literacy, unquote, bills in state legislatures around the country would allow more students in public high schools to study the Old and New Testaments. Proposals from lawmakers in at least six states would require or encourage schools to offer elective classes on the Bible's literacy and historical significance. How can you require a school to do this? Don't people understand in these various state legislatures that we, that we have a First Amendment? Part of that First Amendment includes the fact that we don't have an official religion, i.e. Christianity. Peace quoted Republican State Representative Aaron McWilliams of North Dakota as saying the Bible is an integral part of our society and deserves a place in the classroom. And frankly, I wouldn't argue with that. But when you also sponsor a bill that requires the state's public high schools to offer Bible studies, I think you've crossed the line. I suppose Representative McWilliams would feel if we also suggested you require studies of the Koran as part of high school curricula. And we have some bad news for this coming Valentine's Day. Those little sweetheart candies that we've all grown so fond of since childhood with messages on them like, Be mine puppy love and text me that wasn't around when i was a kid i'm thinking more of things like daria anyway uh the neko confectionery company of new england uh, has gone broke and they're not going to have those little valentine candies available this year but they say that they you know may get things ramped up again by next year which would be a shame this company's been around since 1902 although my understanding is that neko wafers go back to the civil war i don't know Anyway, hopefully someone will get their act together and you'll be able to find these candies again in 2020. 
And when I was somewhere driving around, I think, well, I don't know, Paso Robles on 101, Counterspin came on the public radio station I was tuned into. And uh, I was quite shocked by what I heard. Now, we're normally big fans of Counterspin on this show. And on more than one occasion, we actually, uh, I think, aired some excerpts, shall we say, from Counterspin. And to date, I never really heard them say anything I would take issue with. And to date, I'd never heard them say anything that I would take much of an issue with. But when they were supporting, in this case, the president of Venezuela, and this regarding, in this case, Nicolas Maduro as being the legitimate elected president of Venezuela, in spite of the fact that uh, opposition leader Juan Guaido declared himself interim president last week and was promptly recognized by many governments around the world, including the U.S.'s government, Counterspin uh, basically pointed out that, you know, he was duly elected, the U.S. has a long history of interference in other nations' policies and governments, and that Juan Guaido is just a usurper. Counterspin pointed out that this kind of thing is usually referred to as a coup or attempted coup. I had to back off on this a little bit because, as I recall, Maduro stripped his assembly of its powers in 2017 and a month ago began his second six-year term after an election that international observers called rigged. It seems by any standards, Nicolas Maduro is, uh, is presiding over a slow, controlled, or maybe not so controlled crash of the entire Venezuelan economy. And, uh, well, I was just surprised to see Counterspin going to bat for him. Now, we admit, we saw that documentary, or at least part of that documentary a couple years ago that showed how it was that the U.S. tried to engineer a coup of Hugo Chavez. And in what has to be regarded as a moment of political high comedy, during the coup members' press conference in the, I guess it was, presidential headquarters, the word got back to them that the Chavez although he'd been taken into custody by the army, had now been released by those sympathetic to him and was now headed back to the building. The speed at which the press conference was terminated is, well, it's, it's, just, it's just amusing. Us, and when I say us, I guess I mean the CIA and certain intelligence factions of the U.S. power structure, were evidently behind that one, which we can't, you know, voice any approval over. On the other hand, it doesn't appear that Ugo did such a great job He had a lot of programs that were based on the fact that Venezuela evidently has the world's largest oil reserves. I don't know. I always thought Saudi Arabia had the world's largest oil reserves, either that or the U.S. or Russia. I don't know. Anyway, it's got a lot of oil. And when the price of oil is up, it had a lot of money. But guess what? The price of oil collapsed, and so has the Venezuelan economy. Anyway, we don't pretend to be experts on South American political economy, but, well, we'll just follow this like like you will and see, see what happens. And speaking of suspicions of cabals in action, we, we, we've speculated here on this program that with pot becoming legal all across the country, that the various uh, anti-drug forces of the nation, and, and by the way, it's generally acknowledged that three-quarters of the illegal drug use in America has been marijuana, that that becomes legal, but you still want to fly around in helicopters and limos and do all this drug-busting stuff, well, then you better better find a big problem that you need to solve. And apparently that... I suspect, yours truly, I I suspect it's something to do with this quote-unquote opioid crisis. I've had many conversations with doctors and nurses and medical professionals about the everyday issue of drug abusers. It's just just part of practicing medicine. You, the public, have been told that, well, we doctors are screwing this up. We're addicting everybody to OxyContin and this is very bad and yada, yada, yada. We need to crack down on this and make it hard on patients in terrible pain to receive medication for it. 
But it also seems clear that hillbillies across the country, and uh, I shouldn't say hillbillies, um, people across the country are ordering their fentanyl directly from China, which apparently arrives in the U.S. mail. And although we don't doubt that people are dying in increasing numbers thanks to opioids, we suspect that it has to do with Chinese fentanyl more than it has to do with legitimate prescriptions of opioids. Anyway, the drug wars go on. And there's a book out now by a man named Alex Berenson titled, Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Yes, the reefer madness crowd is not going to give up without a fight. Mr. Berenson, described as a former New York Times investigative reporter, has reportedly poured through decades of weed research to come with a case for caution. Writing about this in Vox.com, Germán López says, It is true that marijuana is not harmless. But from that inarguable fact, Berenson unspools what is essentially an exercise in cherry-picking data and presenting correlation as causation. Much of the 272-page book hinges on three bluntly stated ideas. Marijuana causes psychosis. Psychosis causes violence. The obvious implication is that marijuana causes violence. But, said Mr. Lopez, the author woefully misinterprets the studies that are supposed to support his case. And I don't know, I, I read that and my mind just flashes back to that scene in Reefer Madness where the guy that looks like just a fiend out of control is playing the piano as he's smoking reefers. It's no surprise that as a result, someone dies. But I believe that the Radio Parallax audience is, is a sophisticated one. has been around the block a few times. I believe that some of you have smoked marijuana. And I'm certain that almost all of you know people who have smoked marijuana. And I ask you to comb through your memory banks to see if you can come up with a correlation between marijuana and violence. And if you have any examples to cite, also drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We're still hoping in 2019 we can take a look back at um, the use of psychedelics as legitimate therapies in various modalities. And I'm really struck by a look back on the archives from New Scientist magazine in the last issue noting that 30 years ago, ecstasy was becoming the drug of choice at raves. And they note that whenever young people use drugs to have a good time, concerns are not far behind. They note, quote, that an increasingly fashionable, mind-bending drug that induces euphoria and raises self-awareness in users may also damage brain cells irreparably. That's what they reported New Scientist in January 1989. That claim came from Stephen Perutka of Stanford, who warned users to abandon the drug altogether. The article said that ecstasy, or MDMA, prunes the endings of nerve cells that release the chemical serotonin to the brain. There was no mention of any evidence to support his claims of long-term harm. In fact, he acknowledged, quote, no studies have shown unequivocal evidence of toxicity in human users of MDMA. Now, 30 years on, I think it's pretty clear that people can self-injure at raves for a number of reasons. But I got to tell you, when I went to medical school, not that many decades ago, MDMA was being cited as a tremendously promising drug for people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and other ailments. We are now finally getting around to taking a look at that again. And I do hope to bring on this program an expert in using such drugs to help people. But as Amy Goodman would say, we're going to have to leave it there. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Severt. This is Radio Parallax. we got lots more in the second half. Don't go away.
Oh, when he was, when Jesus was.